Good morning. Give a little uh, additional commentary. Next Sunday, we will do what we call an open house Sunday. Put a big sign up out in front of the building. Invite people to open house. And it's really just our attempt to create an introductory environment on a Sunday morning where we're much more introducing introducing ourselves, most importantly, introducing the gospel to folks. And so let me tell you why that's important for you. you know, sometimes what we're doing on a Sunday morning, what we're doing this morning, is, is more about living and proclaiming the gospel as believers. And we, we feel like the emphasis on a Sunday morning typically is going to follow something out of Ephesians 4.11 and the verses right after that, that God gave apostles and prophets evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the church to equip the church so that the church can do the work of ministry so that the body can be built up and we can come into unity and glorify Christ. And so what we do on a Sunday morning typically is an equipping time where you're a believer who's seeking to walk more deeply in the purposes of God and glorify God. And that's where we put the emphasis. An open house, we kind of shift the emphasis more towards introducing the gospel to someone who maybe isn't familiar with what it is to know God, to walk with God, to come into a relationship with God. That might be some of the people that are in your life who are needing more of an introduction to the gospel. Uh, so sometimes you might feel like a Sunday morning topic might not be what your neighbor or some relative that you've been sharing with lately needed to hear, but but we try to make these open house Sundays when we do that more of an introduction. So this week, be thinking, God, who have you put in my life that I want to introduce to the gospel? I want to give them a setting where they can hear an introduction to the gospel and come to more fully understand God's purpose in their life. Well, this morning, we are continuing in our series on discipleship in the digital age. And uh, again, typical to what we would usually do on a Sunday morning. Usually on a Sunday morning, we're, we're taking a passage and just, I think, the mindset of all of us as pastors is when we, we come to this meeting, we, we kind of want to put one foot in, in the Word of God and then one foot in your world and bring those two things together for you to be able to, to see and connect the realities of God's Word with the realities of the world in which you live. So you, typically our pattern, if you went back and listened to a bunch of messages, you'd find the first foot goes here and the second foot kind of goes there. Well, this series, we're kind of doing a little bit differently. This is more like I'm putting one foot in your world first, and then we're going to put one foot in the Word and find out how these two come together. And the, and the thing I'm trying to put us in touch with is the reality of the world in which we live and how it affects us. What you're encountering every day in the world that you live in, and I think the age in which we live, we're just kind of titling this the, the digital age, this age of of information, this age of technology, it influences our lives. And sometimes we have slowly seen those changes take place over time and we've kind of lost touch with just how influenced we really are. Right? When, when technology changes, lifestyle changes. And when lifestyle changes, the effect on our souls change. So... In an interesting way, your soul is connected to technology. Years ago, there was a huge shift in population 
in this country in particular, but it happens all over the world as well, the development of what is so common to us now, the suburban world, begin to take place. The suburban world is a technological development. The automobile, the ownership of the automobile, interstate highways, communications like telephones and computers, to where distance began to not matter as much. When that began to creep in, people began to shift the way in which they lived. You know, if you were years and years ago, you know, my dad grew up here in New Orleans. My dad's 93 years old. I'm so grateful to still have him around. But to have him talk to you about lifestyle years ago, you know, where he grew up, the neighborhoods and what they were like. You either walked everywhere. You know, you still see some of this. You go into New Orleans, you still see neighborhood groceries, a little remnant corner store that, that now sells the best po' boy in the world. Uh, but that used to be the grocery store, and you'd walk to that thing. And if you really had to travel far, you know, maybe you're going to go to Krauss or something on Canal Boulevard <laughs> or Holmes's. Uh, if you're going to go there, you might take public transportation, right? You, so you might hop on a streetcar, maybe take a bus because you didn't own a car. And so, you know, all of life sort of made sense and relationships made sense and people made sense and the size of your life made sense in that. And then, and then all of a sudden, technology changed and people could move farther away. They could, they could pursue something, right? You understand that years ago, most of, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, so I've never known anything different. But years ago, people moved to the suburbs because they were after something. Right? People, people today still do this. I've noticed this years ago. People move to the North Shore because they're after something. Right? They lived in the suburb over here, but they want to move to the North Shore because they want something different. And so being in touch with the fact that you're after something, something in you is causing you to desire life to be a certain way, and I want to live in a certain setting in order for my life to be able to have those things and to be influenced by them. Right, so it was interesting. I've read a couple of books on the suburb because really for us, the suburb is a mission field. If you're a believer, every, every realm of human life, your jobs, schools, everything is a mission field. Well, in America, more people today live in the suburbs than in the city and in the country combined. It's where life is happening in this country. So that, that's a mission field. The people that are mostly available to hear the gospel that we're around are living in that world, right? So a couple of years ago, I began to do some study on suburban lifestyle. I read a book by a guy named David Getz called it Death by Suburb. Listen to these thoughts. He says, does life in the suburbs kill our souls? Without a spiritual focus, we start acting as if the world's highest priorities are a perfect lawn, a daughter on the honor roll, and a son's victories in soccer. The suburbs are a real world, but a spiritually dead one. But he goes on and says this. In the introduction to Crabgrass Frontier, sociologist Kenneth Jackson writes, the space around us, the physical organization of neighborhoods, roads, yards, houses, and apartments sets up living patterns that condition our behavior. What Jackson observed sociologically may also be true spiritually. The environment of the suburbs weathers one's soul peculiarly. The living patterns of the good life affect me more than I know. 
And that's kind of all we've known for many of us who just kind of grew up in a suburban setting. You may not be aware of just how it's affecting us. I think the digital age is similar to the suburban development. The digital age, you know, if you're younger, if you're thir- under 30, all you've known is the digital age. You, you don't know anything different than that. You don't know what it is not to have a cell phone on your belt or in your pocket or have a laptop or, you know, means of communicating and living life under a huge amount of information. But some of us have kind of watched that happen. And I think in the same way that Getz points out about the suburban uh, elements, there are living patterns that condition our behavior. And these living patterns are affecting us more than we know. And so today, I want to move into talking a little bit about another aspect, one of the fundamentals of Christianity that I believe is being eroded in the digital age. And it's the fundamental of prayer. Of being a, a disciple means having a prayer life, a significant means of communing and communicating with God. In your outline, there's a section that says pace, processing, and prayer. Right? This digital age cocktail, continuous, accessible information. At any moment, you can just kind of jump into a world of distraction by picking up your smartphone or by grabbing your laptop or going into a world of information that will just kind of tantalize and tease you on a regular basis. Immediate, constant communication. Right? You're never alone, are you? I mean, if you get a spare moment, you, you know, if you're at a traffic light, you can text somebody. You can call somebody. I mean, you just constantly can fill your world with people. Multitasking, right? Giving your attention to multiple things. Skimming, as we've looked at. The, the Google lifestyle of reading is now a skim. It's, we want to be able to look at something quickly and get quick bits of information from it. We don't want to sit long over information and ponder and consider deeply that information. The hyper-relational world that we live in, where we have so much more information about all the people that we know and all the people that we kind of really don't know, but they're still there in our world, right? They're on our Facebook, they're connected to us somehow, and we're getting we're getting their daily updates. And, and so we just have so much information to try and manage. And yet, we're called to be a people, called by God to be a people, to put huge, important emphasis on things like knowing God, on things like prayer and communing with God, fellowship, learning, teaching of God's word in our lives, the mission of the gospel in this world, in the brief days that you and I have here to participate in that mission. These things are being eroded. And and when we look at some of the ways in which erosion is taking place into the realm of prayer, I just want to focus on that today. I I think the information age, the pace of our lives, the way we process information, it's having an undercurrent eroding effect upon having significant, meaningful prayer lives. It's a challenge for us to find time to pray and just the pace of our lives. And how many of us would recognize that we're, that we're trying to probably cram about 28 hours worth of information and activity 
into our 24-hour capacities. Now, listen, I'll say this carefully because not everybody has the same capacity. Right? Some of us can only put about 20 hours into our 24 hours of, of life. But some people maybe can scoot a little bit more than, than another person can. But I think most of us find ourselves trying to put too much. I mean, and I'm guilty of this. Man, I'm the other day, I'm try- I have too many things to do, so I'm, I've got my earphones in. I'm listening to a message just to keep up with some news that's happening somewhere else, and I'm reading something while I'm studying for a message. <laughs> now, maybe some of you can multitask. I am not a multitasker, so that's almost laughable for me to think, what were you doing in that moment? Probably nothing. <laughs> Probably just <laughs> blurred sound and sight. Nothing was happening in your brain. But we just want to get so much done. There's so much to do. There's so much to interact with and to know. I've just, I've just got to... And so we try and do so many things. But, you know, prayer, prayer is an unusual animal. You, you kind of can't multitask prayer. You can't do to it what we do to so much other interaction and so many other things in our life. David gets his book says, I'm at church most every Sunday with my family. I play tepid electric guitar licks in the worship band for our contemporary service. I don't give as much money as I should to the church, but I, I hope to after I make it big. And I fear that my lack of Bible reading may be the primary reason I feel such a spiritual malaise while living the good life in my safe burb. Somebody just told me that 90% of Christians don't read their Bible every day. I sure don't. I've had a few good stretches, but I'm not in one now. And I've never read the Bible in one year like my mom did. Right? I, I think, and this is a book about suburban lifestyle. I think if you married to that, and this is a book about five years old, I believe, too. you married to that more influential component of the digital age. I wonder how many of us as Christians today would describe our lives that way. Kind of a, a spiritual malaise while living the good life. There's a bunch of stuff that we just want to have, we want to do, we want to pursue, we want to enjoy, we want to experience. But spiritually, we feel like I'm in this fog in this malaise. I don't, I don't feel as dynamic as I want to feel. I don't feel as deep as I want to feel. I don't feel as real with God as I want to feel. But man, tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm going to be trying to get the good life big in my life. And it ends up spiritually being a malaise. Look at this thought in your outline. To develop or maintain a meaningful prayer life, be prepared to interrupt the pace of life and to process thought and information differently. Be prepared. You're sitting here today and thinking, okay, a message about having a better prayer life. You won't go anywhere if you're not prepared for those two factors in your life. You won't take this at all further than just hearing it. Unless you're prepared to interrupt the pace of your life and to process information differently, to interact with God in prayer is going to feel very different than the way in which information tends to come to you. It's not going to be a text message. It's not going to feel like a Google search. It's going to feel very different. David Getz says, Busyness and efficiency stalk the deeper spiritual life. Right? Busyness. And if we want to be efficient. Every spirituality guru and papyrus since the Desert Fathers trumpets that you can't live the deeper life and the busy life. You get one, but not the other. In the toxic dump of efficiency and control, though, 
the first act must be countercultural, a decision not to act. We don't do that well, do we? We don't slow up. We don't say no to things. This is the first spiritual practice, a choice to listen and wait for God. Making time for space for God is the most basic element of spirituality. Tim Challies in his book on the digital age says, Christians have long understood that productivity is not easily measured by any spiritual metric. How do you know if you're being productive spiritually? We read of Jesus who maintained a ministry in which he was always in demand. As he went from one town to the next, the crowds pressed around him, asking him to go this way and that, to heal the sick, to cure the lame. And yet Jesus constantly retreated. He would, he would go into the wilderness by himself for extended periods of quiet communion with his father. As the pace grew, Jesus would constantly slow it down in order to keep his focus on what was most important. Much of his time was not productive in any way we could easily measure. And yet his time was sacred, every moment dedicated to the Father. I think it's safe to say there's never been a human being on planet Earth who had more to do than Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, his mission, none of us can begin to even compare our mission the needs that were around him and the ability he had to interact with those needs. Man, I can come in contact with needs, but but there's so many things I I can't fix. I don't have the wisdom or the power to touch somebody's life the way Jesus just could go anywhere at any time. Can you think of of a person who had more demand on him as he walked around in this life? But yet if you follow his story... He neglected a lot of those things. He said no to a lot of those things in order to say yes to his interaction with his father, to commune and to pray. And he would get away regularly to interact with God in a meaningful way. Listen, I don't know for you, at the end of the day, what is it that you've done that makes you feel like you were productive? And when you get to the close of the day and you're kind of relaxing and the day's about to end, you're going to set your head on the pillow for the night and you review the day. What is it that makes you feel like, you know, today was a productive day? This is a good day today. We got a lot done today. Or maybe, maybe as important is what you think other people use to measure your productivity. What do you need to do in order for you to feel like other people think you're productive. Because listen, having a significant prayer life can, can look like you're leaving some things undone. Or you didn't get to some, somebody's important to-do list. You didn't, maybe you didn't get to your own. You need to be prepared that you're going to create some awkwardness by saying yes to a significant interaction with God. You're going to end up saying no to some other things. And if you're not ready for that, then you'll never have a prayer life, especially in the busy age in which you and I live. Prayer is not a Google search. It's going to feel different. The information is going to come. It's, you know, digital. Heck, I don't even know if it's analog. (laughs) You pray, the information can trickle in at such a slow pace. 
the Old Testament prophets used to interact with God and he used to describe their interactions sometimes by saying that the heavens were like brass, right? You know, the, the rain just won't come. The heavens are just shut up like they've become this solid wall and there's nothing coming down from God. Well, how, how do you know that until you've hung around and hung around and hung around and waited and waited and waited and then become convinced heaven is closed today? <laughs> Not open out of the office today. But that's how prayer is going to feel sometimes. I mean, what do you do when you feed in a Google search and you hit the little return button and whatever you got spins and spins and spins? I bet if it spins past 10 to 12 seconds, you're done with that page, right? I am. Man, if you keep spinning, it's 15 seconds. I don't need this. I just, you know, I'll, I'll find something else to search for. Listen, and you and I get trained by that. Fast food, fast response, God doesn't play that way. Part of the reason why is because, you know, for God, the end of the trail for God isn't the answer to our question. Usually the the question simply is the means for us to get on the trail. The thing that in life that's bugging us, overwhelming us, making us scared to death, we're thinking, okay, this is what prayer is about. Prayer is about getting the answer to that thing. Prayer is about solving this internal turmoil that I'm experiencing because I, I don't know what to expect in this aspect of my life. Prayer is about getting the answer to that. It's about getting the mystery of that revealed. So we pray as though when we get to the end of the trail here, ah, oh, I know what to do now. That's how we approach prayer. For God, that internal turmoil and questions is simply the thing that puts us on the trail that leads to him. All he did was let our lives get in such a place that something is making me run to God. At the end of God's trail is God. Fellowship with him, enjoying him, basking in his glory taking in a revelation about the wonder and awe of God. Right, when you understand, when, we, when we're standing in heaven for all eternity, that's what heaven will be like. It will be the enjoyment of all that God is, our eyes being opened in a greater capacity to absorb and take in. I don't know, I don't know if we're going to walk around in heaven with eyes that are about this big, maybe. You know, we've got these little bitty eyes right now. We're going to have these big, giant bug eyes so we can look on God and take Him in more and experience Him. That's what God has in mind. So God's not interested in just dispensing. You fed in a question, you know, God, what's up with this? I got a lot to do today, God. (laughs) Waiting for Google answer from God over that thing. And God's just sort of like, "Um, I just want to be with you. I want you to be with me. That's what your soul really needs. You just need my presence. You need to feel the effect of my life upon your soul. That's what God was after. Right? You and I have made information God. We've made answer to our questions God. We've made 
knowing something about life, God. We've made furthering our interest, God. God wants to be God. And so he's not in a hurry for just a quick dispensing of information. Listen, if you're a parent, you know a little bit about this. At some point, your children just wanting you and wanting to be with you matters to you. You just don't want to be the, the, the $10, $20 dispenser, right? Hey, can we go there? Can I have the car? Can I have 10 bucks? Can you drive me here? You know, it's like, hey, that's all right. I don't mind serving. I love you. God does that too. You know, we want to do that with each other. But, you know, at some point, I'd, I'd like to be the destination right here. You know, you're coming to me because you love me. And not just you're on your way to the thing that you love and you want me to help you get there. I understand God's not in a hurry the way we're in a hurry. So if you're not ready for that, prayer's not going to make a whole lot of sense to you. You won't go too far. Philip Yancey says, George Mueller began each day with several hours of prayer, imploring God to meet the practical needs of his orphanage. Bishop Lancelot Andrews allotted five hours per day to prayer. Charles Simeon rose at 4 a.m. to begin his four-hour regimen. Susanna Wesley, a busy mother who had no privacy, would sit in a rocking chair with an apron over her head praying for John and Charles and the rest of her brood. I think it was about 15 kids, if I'm remembering right. Martin Luther, who devoted two or three hours daily to prayer and said, we should do it as naturally as a shoemaker makes a shoe and a tailor makes a coat. Jonathan Edwards wrote of the sweet hours on the banks of the Hudson River, wrapped and swallowed up in God. What accounts for the disparity between Luther and Simeon on their knees for several hours and the modern prayer fidgeting in a chair after 10 minutes? Increasingly, time pressures crowd out the leisurely pace that prayer seems to require. Communication with other people keeps getting shorter and more cryptic. Text messages, email, instant messaging. We have less and less time for conversation, let alone contemplation. We have the constant sensation of not enough, not enough time, not enough rest, not enough exercise, not enough leisure. Where does God fit into a life that already seems behind schedule? Right? It's like the schedule runs off. By the time my brain is awake and my feet can get to the floor, I'm already behind schedule. (laughs) Already. And where does God fit into that? We're rushed. We're in a hurry. There's so much to do. We've got to get to it. And prayer is trying to find its way into that. Prayer is an irreducible fundamental to the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life without an effective prayer life. It's just really that simple. You cannot live it. You can think you're living it. You can take a swing at it. I don't think you'll make contact. You might foul a ball off. But to be a heavy hitter in the realm of Christianity requires a meaningful, substantive prayer life, right? Quick thoughts here. Donald Whitney says, of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is second only to intake of God's word and importance. One of the main reasons for a lack of godliness is prayerlessness. Carl Lundquist says, whatever varying religious exercises we may practice, Without the two basic ones of Emmaus, prayer and Bible reading, the others are empty and powerless. Maybe you feel like your lives are becoming empty and powerless. 
you know, we're, we're, yeah, we're reading the Bible a bit. We're attending some meetings. We go to covenant group. We, we try to minister to people. We try to share the gospel. We just don't feel like there's power there. Well, might it be that without prayer, there isn't going to be power in our lives. J.C. Ryle ramps it up a little farther. He says, prayer is the most important subject in practical religion. All other subjects are second to it. Reading the Bible, keeping the Sabbath, hearing sermons, attending public worship, going to the Lord's table. All these are very weighty matters, but none of them are so important as private prayer. All right, when we started this series, one of the things I'm concerned about is this low-grade, dysfunctional, sub-biblical lifestyle, sort of a a lead poisoning thing, as we said. And we kind of don't know any difference, so some of us don't get real jazzed over that, get real bothered by the fact that we're living this low-grade experience. But yeah, when we read the Bible, I hope when you read the Bible, you see that there's so much more. It's so much deeper. It's so much more effective. It's so much more amazing to us than maybe what our experience has been so far. Might it be that there are elements that I think are irreducibly fundamental to Christianity? If you've got Sunday morning meeting and maybe a Bible study that you go to, or maybe a covenant group meeting that you're a part of, but you don't have a prayer life. These things will become powerless in your life. there, There isn't a brochure out there that teaches this, but somehow it's out there. The thought that you can attend this meeting on a Sunday morning and survive as a Christian without Bible reading and prayer. It's, it's nowhere in the Bible, please. Take that brochure and burn it. It's bad, bad, bad information. Whatever it is that you're living, it's so sub-biblical. Ask for a refund. You haven't got the real deal. But if it starts feeling normal, normal. That's what everybody else is like. You sit in a meeting. What if you sat in a meeting and and the folks gathered were Martin Luther and Charles Simeon and these guys and they all start sharing about their daily interactions with God and, you know, four hours here and three hours there and got up at 4 a.m. I mean, just your, this is your covenant group, right? You don't know these folks, but that's who they are. I'm Martin Luther's there and they go around the meeting and your leader asks a question and they begin to share. And one after another depicts this life of, of intense interaction with God and, and overwhelming joy and connection and exchange with him that took time and was meaningful and deep and substantive. And then it was your turn to share. And week after week, after week, you describe this disconnect, this, I didn't have time. Oh, I was so busy. You would feel abnormal in that moment, so much so that you might rethink how you're doing this. 
But if you go to a meeting where one person after another begins to share what sounds like, oh, you know, I was really hoping this year to get more time in my Bible. I started all, got two weeks into January and just kind of fell apart and I'm right back in the same run. The next person shares, oh, you know, I'm, I just, it's so hard. It's just so hard to pray. And the person on the other side of the room immediately, amen, I know, I know. It's just, there's so much going on. And, you know, and I might even get five minutes, five minutes. I'm lucky if I got two minutes the other day. Yeah, man, and everybody just makes it sound normal. You don't walk out of that meeting and go, oh my gosh, I am missing something. You feel like a normal Christian. What if God never intended? What if God really did have some irreducible fundamentals to the Christian life? He never intended that anybody would try this without a prayer life that is influential and effective and deep. We might feel very different if our lives had some of these components in it in a more effective way. Let me do this. I have uh, developed a little bit of an acronym here using prayer for us to consider, well, how does the scriptures describe the effectiveness of prayer? What, what, what is prayer going to do in our lives as we pursue it? And then I want you to imagine with me as we walk through these categories, I want you to imagine with me your life without these categories. So if you have a prayer life and these things are being experienced as a result of prayer, or if you don't have a prayer life, then these things are being lost as a result of that lack. And I want you to consider what your life will feel like as a result of those things. Right? So prayer, starting with P, gives us the word perspective. Prayer provides perspective. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your hearts be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, your perspective is so limited. You can't see over the tall weeds, much less the trees. So for you to have a perspective The big picture, you have most certainly lost sight of some things because you are on earth. So be careful when you approach God. As you come before God and you come to God in prayer, remember, it is God's perspective on your life that you're after. It's not yours. How many of us have flipped prayer around and we're trying to talk God into our perspective? (laughs) Right? We come to God and... And all we, we lament, God, the, the trees are so big. God, you don't understand if it fell, if that tree fell, God, do you understand? <laughs> like, God, would you please lower your perspective so that you see life the way I see it? No, 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 no. God is in heaven. His perspective is a heavenly perspective. Let your words be few. Let God adjust your perspective on how you see your life. Matthew 6. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a heavenly perspective for our lives. Growing up here in in New Orleans, if you you can have an earthly perspective, right? Katrina was, was big on this. You'd hear people from outside this area talk about this area. And, you know, this huge panic and concern that, you know, the Gulf of Mexico is going to swallow the city of New Orleans. You know, I, I grew up fishing in Port Sulphur. So, you know, as a kid, I knew that, you know, it was, it was an hour and a half drive from our house to Port Sulphur, uh, you know, which was still a little bit farther to go into the, out into the Gulf. So, you know, my perspective was the Gulf of Mexico is pretty far away. Now, how many of you guys have ever flown in an airplane from the east into New Orleans? and looked out the window to your left. You see downtown, and you look to the east, and just a little bitty piece of land that's got a lot of water already in it (laughs) is separating downtown New Orleans from the Gulf of Mexico. It's a little different than my hour and a half drive toward the coastline. From that perspective, the danger is much more imminent, isn't it? Listen, there are some things about our lives that just need to be seen from a heavenly perspective, good and bad. There's some people that think, you know what? That sin issue, that trap of the devil is so far from me. I am so safe where I am. You might need to get God's aerial photograph of just how imminent and close that danger really is to your soul. See, God is in heaven. And his perspective on our lives is very different than our earthly perspective. Philippians, he says, prayer helps correct myopia. Calling to mind a perspective I daily forget. Prayer raises my sight beyond the petty circumstances of daily life to afford a glimpse of that lofty perspective. I realize my tininess and God's vastness and the true relation of the two. I need the corrective vision of prayer because all day long I will lose sight of God's perspective. I turn on the television and face a barrage of advertisements assuring me that success and achievement are measured by possessions and physical appearance. The world obscures the view from above. Prayer and only prayer restores my vision to one that more resembles God's. I awake from blindness to see that wealth lurks as a terrible danger, not a goal worth striving for. That value depends not on race or status, but on the image of God every person bears. That no amount of effort to improve physical beauty has much relevance for the world beyond. I pray to restore the truth of the universe, to gain a glimpse of the world and of me through the eyes of God. Prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. And just with that thought, imagine your life with prayer and imagine your life without it. If you don't have a prayer life, then you are a person living on a daily basis with a bad perspective on your life, on your condition, on things going on around you, what to pursue, what not to pursue. 
Prayer puts me in touch with realities outside my reality, a supernatural God beyond this natural world, an unseen kingdom in the midst of a seen kingdom. Right, there are realities that escape my reality. Look at Second Kings chapter 6. One day the king of Syria had had enough of Elisha the prophet who God was informing the prophet of every move that the king of Syria was about to make. So the people of Israel were all, always one step ahead. And eventually he figures this out and he sends an army to go and get Elisha. Right, so this is, this is the story that we're jumping into here. Verse 14. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, this is Elijah's servant, and he went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Right now, I'm... I imagine I could hide a microphone in some of our homes and maybe it's not the servant, but it's the husband or the wife or who's asking that same question, right? What what are we going to do? This is life's question. What are we going to do? Why are you asking it that way? Because I feel surrounded. I feel there's no way out. I feel this, this circumstance can't change. We can't fix this. We can't overcome this. What are we going to do? We're in a panic. All right, well, this is where prayer is so vitally important. See, Elisha was a man who prayed, and so he had a perspective on his life. Verse 16. He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, Elisha was a man who prayed. He knew that. His perspective on his life was that my covenant God has surrounded me. And he who is for me is greater than he who is against me, right? That sounds like a New Testament thought, right? It's just not new to the Bible. Prayer brings a perspective. There there was an insight that Elisha had about his life that his servant did not have. And you and I can be living our lives out of one of those two perspectives. Prayer brings perspective into our lives. Ephesians 6 verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? That's a a perspective phrase right there. Because it sure feels like I'm wrestling against flesh and blood. It sure seems to me like the biggest problems in my life got flesh and blood attached to them. It's people, isn't it? I mean, I know you got a few problems here and there that aren't people, but for the most part, the problem's people. And the Bible comes along and takes this aerial photograph of life from God's heavenly perspective and says, no, 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 no. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You just thought you were. 
You wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's the perspective you get from God. When you pray, God lets you in on those things. God opens your eyes to these heavenly realities. Listen, you know, in our homes, too, too many of us are fighting husband and wife issues, flesh and blood issues, instead of stepping back and getting a prayer revelation, a perspective on our lives from God. That would cause us as husband and wife to realize, you know what? You are not my enemy. There is an enemy. And it's not you. Instead of facing each other in antagonism, to lock arms together and to turn in the power of God and face the principalities and powers and the forces of darkness and heavenly places that come against your life. That's perspective. Now, if you don't have a prayer life, I bet you haven't thought that thought in a long time. Right? Come on, be honest with me sit in counseling meetings sometimes and you introduce that thought, especially to couples, and it's almost like, oh, oh yeah, I could have had a V8. I, yeah. You know, well, if you don't have a prayer life, it's hard for that to be communicated to you. God will communicate these things. It brings perspective. The posture of prayer allows our thoughts to receive a heavenly outlook. I'm bringing my thoughts to God, right? Remember this example from Paul's thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12. It says, three times, right? Here's his prayer life. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Right? This is a prayer exchange, This is Paul coming to God over and over and over again and pleading, God, change my circumstances. God, change my circumstances. God, change my circumstances. And God doesn't change his circumstances, does he? God changes his perspective. That's all that changed for Paul. And immediately it was enough. Matter of fact, Paul actually celebrated his circumstances. The ones that he was asking for relief from, he is now embracing Listen, you can't have a Google prayer life and experience that kind of thing. You can't just kind of have it. You know, I go to God when I'm in a panic and I got a quick moment and God fixed this. And, because, see, our perspective never changes until you get around God and get God's perspective. Come before God realizing you were on earth amidst the tall trees and God is in heaven against the little green flakes. His perspective is different. And you need to get his perspective. Paul got his perspective. That's what prayer does for us. Prayer relieves burdens. P-R. Prayer. We're going to spell the word prayer. We're actually going to misspell the word prayer, but I'll explain that to you in a second. (laughs) Prayer relieves burdens. It's interesting. The the English word prayer comes from the root for the Latin word precarious, from which we get the word precarious. We're in a precarious situation. And interesting, that's where prayer comes from. You and I are praying out of precarious lives, right? Precarious, it means unsafe, unsteady, uncertain, insecure. That's the condition of your life. You can have moments where everything all of a sudden feels unsafe, insecure. It doesn't feel stable in this moment. That's a precarious situation. That's what prayer is about. It's about you and I 
in the midst of our overload, our heaviness of life, our feeling vulnerable to life, being able to go before God, right, with great verses like this, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Cast your cares. I know, listen, right now, when was the last time you unloaded something on God? You handed it off for him to carry. You took it from the the weight that you were feeling, this load that was crushing you, and you wake up in the morning. And I've I've, I've had weights sit on me. I'll describe it to my wife by saying, I feel like an elephant is standing on me. Now wake up to that. Wake up times are the worst times for me. I don't know what it is. I could, maybe if I just never went to sleep, I could stay up all night long and be fine. My wife loses perspective at night. We know never to do marriage issues when it's time to go to bed. I'd be fine, but that's not a good time for her. She probably needs to make sure the morning is a good time for me because life feels like an elephant sometimes. Right? Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And prayer gives me the opportunity to take the elephant and to, and to give it to God. To hear God, can you hold this elephant for a little bit? And that sounds ridiculous, right? Because obviously I couldn't take an elephant in one hand and hand it to God, right? But God could take an elephant from me, couldn't he? Look, I got him by the tail. <laughs> you know, elephants to us, they're just not elephants to God. So prayer gives me a place to, to experience relief from the burdens of life. Hebrews four sixteen. let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, in our precarious moments. Let us draw near to God. So if you're not drawing near, listen to Donna Whitney. To abandon prayer is to fight the battle with our own resources at best and to lose interest in the battle at worst. A prayerless life is an overloaded life that is not mindful of help. If you're here this morning and and you're in touch with this over the last week where your life just feels overwhelmed and you feel, and you are most in touch with this, I am overwhelmed and lacking ability. I am am overwhelmed by life and what's going on and I'm lacking ability. And I I really could stop the service right now, couldn't I? Because there would be a significant number of folks here this morning who said, you know, that that is how I feel often. I am overwhelmed and I, I feel like I lack ability. but I'm to download the overwhelmingness to God and take my cares and give them to him through prayer. And I'm to draw near to God so that I might receive grace and mercy to help in my precarious situation. Do do you get a picture as to how important prayer really is? Because if you don't have a prayer life, you get to keep the elephant and to feel like you don't have the ability to face tomorrow. That's what you get to have in exchange. How many of you guys would be willing to trade some of your Facebook time for getting rid of your elephants and receiving mercy that will actually help? You actually will get ability in life. Isn't it amazing? I know this is, this is like drinking the Kool-Aid or something. This is, this, I know we're all smoking something in the digital age. 
we're, we're walking around, we go to our meetings, we share with each other, we go to counseling, we talk, we get on the phone, we exchange with people and we describe our elephants. We tell people about our elephants and I'm overwhelmed and I'm crushed and I don't know what to do and I don't feel like I'm a billionaire. And, and we log in all kinds of time interacting with information about somebody on the other side of the world. I'll never know, never meet, don't truly even care about all that much. And that's followed up by the latest news flash. And, and then some noise tells me that somebody checked my status or whatever. Right? And I'm, I'm, I'm all up in that business of my life and I'm being crushed by these elephants. And then we, you know, hey, how's, how's your prayer life? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Prayer was intended to relieve the burdens. It's intended to, to affect the precariousness of our lives. It's a gift from God. It's a good gift from God. Prayer, let's go to the A here. Prayer acknowledges God's presence, his sovereignty, and his purpose. All right, one of the greatest statements, I think, that brings clarity to who God is is made in Scripture in Daniel chapter 4 by an unlikely individual. But this individual spent a little time in solitary confinement in prayer, and he got some really big insights. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon who came and conquered the people of Israel, overthrew Jerusalem, burned the place to the ground. Remember this guy? Look what happens here in chapter 4, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Right, can I just stop here before we get too far into the story? Uh, I was going to ask you all to show your hands, but maybe this isn't a good time to show your hands. How many of you have people in your life that you're just convinced that they're so hard and proud and resistive to God that they're just never going to change? <laughs> wow, thank you for your hands. <laughs> Are they with you? No, I'm just kidding. All right, this is Nebuchadnezzar, right? Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors, my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's jerky, obnoxious King Nebuchadnezzar saying that. I know we get convinced that there ain't no way God can communicate that to some people. Listen, God can communicate that. And sometimes we're the ones needing to have it communicated to us. In the midst of our life, sometimes God needs to come along and say, hey, prayer gives a, the acknowledgement that God is sovereign over it all. He's ruling over it all. That other example there, I won't take time to, to read it. Joseph in Egypt, his brothers are in distress at the revelation that Joseph is alive. The brother that we betrayed and sold into slavery. Joseph, after years and years of being rejected by his family, betrayed by his brothers, lied about by the people in Egypt, put into a horrible jail cell and forgotten there. But yet God has revealed himself to Joseph and Joseph sees something and he's acknowledging the sovereign purpose of God over his life so that when he meets his brothers, his brothers are in distress. He's not. He's overjoyed. They begin to tear up and cry in fear. He comforts them. He says, listen, you sold me here. But God sent me here. See, he had seen something. He had been with God and he saw God sent me ahead of you to preserve lives because there's a famine in the land and it's been in the land for the last couple of years, but there's more years to come. And God has sent me here. See, he saw the purpose of God. You see what prayer does? It gets your mind around God. And you begin to acknowledge that right now, wherever you are in your life and what you're facing, what is God doing in it? See, if I'm out of touch with that, just extract that from your life for a moment. All you got is difficulty now, right? Probably what, what feels like meaningless difficulty. This just ends up in ruin. It's just going to wreck my life. It's going to cost me my health, relationship. It's, gonna, it's just going to go bad. If I get around God, though, I begin to acknowledge that God is purposeful. God is sovereign. God is up to something. Now I feel totally different about my life. The why in prayer is for yourself. Prayer brings reality to your own address, conviction, repentance, burden. Prayer protects us from religion without affection. A prayer life takes me before God. Takes the realities of my life before God, for God to deal with really who I am and really where I'm at. Prayer provides a place for the confession of sin. I go before God, I'm I'm convicted. I confess, I admit, I agree with God about my own sin. It's an interesting insight I read a while ago from Bill Hull. He says, 
How can we truly be repentant without remorse accompanied by a deeply moving encounter with God? One of the pathologies of longtime Christians is that we stop confessing. Oh, we still confess the big stuff, the sins that hurt others or will cost us if we don't apologize. But the conscience can be hardened by repeated sins that we no longer see as sin. I can't tell you how many times I have encountered this blindness. A group of people get duped by the devil and begin to slander and gossip. When they are confronted, they immediately morph from attacker to victim. They act like and even claim that what destruction they have done to others isn't that bad. Then they say it. The statement that drives me nearly insane. We all are sinners. What this means is you can't hold us accountable for our actions. We're justified in hurting people and destroying reputations because we were upset. Right? You ever explain why it is that you said what you said? It's always because you were upset, right? One day in the wake of this tripe, I shot back. Name three of the sins you have committed this week. They couldn't think of one. This is what I mean. You can be bullish on the doctrine of everyone as a sinner, and at the same time, you haven't confessed in months, sometimes years. All right, now do your own little quick survey. What did you confess this week? See, Google prayer lives don't do a lot of confessing. You just don't have time for that, see, because you're there to get information from God. You're there to get something quick. Sometimes it's just the presence of God that begins to sort of soak into attitudes that I'm having or something that I said. Areas that aren't the poster children for repentance, like laziness. How many of y'all have repented and confessed laziness lately? God, I'm just lazy, Lord. Or greedy. Or gluttonous. Right? I mean, it is obvious that we know we've got to confess the big stuff. You know, if we rip somebody off and this deal's about to go to the newspaper, I've got to come clean on this, you know. Adultery's been committed. Oh, I've got to come clean. But what about lesser sins? Listen, I, you know, I need to do a better job about confessing things like unbelief and fear. Now that elephant sitting on me, it's fear related. I'm fearful about something and filled with unbelief. That's why that feels so heavy. You know, and everybody feels sorry for me now. I said, yeah, I'm fearful and I don't believe. <laughs> Listen, God's not in heaven going, oh, oh. Listen, God doesn't understand why I'm fearful and unbelieving. He's God. He stands before my life with huge explosions and wonder and awe and power and love and convincing acts toward me. And I view all that and I go, I'm afraid. And and, and I don't know what's going to happen to me. God doesn't sit there and go, yeah, well, you know, given who I am, I completely understand how you'd feel. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon used to tell his people, God doesn't understand your unbelief. Stop asking him to. He doesn't get it. It's sinful in light of who God is for me not to trust him. I need to confess that. I need a place of significant confession. Prayer brings realities to me. 
right? Put yourself in the equation. Prayer gives opportunity for deep working of conviction and convincing in our hearts, deep working to where you're convinced and you can actually take actions in your life now because you're convinced deeply about something from God. Prayer exposes our hearts to the burden and heart of God. Right, listen, you know, we sing that song a little while ago. Oh, happy day. You know, it, it needs the O on the front end, doesn't it? If you really get the song, all my sins are washed away. If that doesn't make you go, oh, baby, then you just haven't really given that much thought, have you? Really, right? I mean, I'm singing some songs. There's a little thing about forgiveness happening right there. That's cool. But, you know, my, my oven's broken. I got to get home. And uh, <laughs> all your sins are forgiven forever. Woo! That's unbelievable. That makes me go, oh, happy day. Even though I don't know how I'm paying that bill. <laughs> if that dude needs to come fix that thing, I can't pay him to fix that. But you know what's bigger than that? It's my sins have been forgiven and I've been returned to my God and I know him and I will know him forever. Where where does that O come from? It comes from hanging around that truth, turning it over and over and examining it top and bottom and contemplating and taking the time to interact with truth in prayer. That's where O comes from. Otherwise, you might just sing the doctrinal part. All my sins are washed away. Yeah, but does it make you go, oh, happy day? Well, no, Keith, I'm just kind of not that way. You would be if you got around God a little bit more. I'll leave that alone. Tim Challey says, we need to be Christians who take time to give sustained focus to one thing, the worship of the living God. He does not call us to study his word more efficiently. God calls us to read his word meditatively, to give it the time and attention it needs, the attention we need. If the word is to pierce the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart, I'm going to need to interact with it to let it go deeply into my life. You're wrestling with issues. You know, okay, why are you doing that? Why why do you do what you do? Why do you say that? Why do you respond that way? I I don't know. You know, I just do. All right, if I'd asked you that same question 15 years ago, would you have given the same answer? Why do you do that? I I just always, I, I don't know why. My dad did that. I don't know. Okay, I can, I can almost guarantee you that's an indicator of a poor prayer life. You see, when God takes the word of God through prayer and he, and he divides the soul and the spirit and he brings it into the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, you start finding out why you do what you do. Why do you do that? Well, I respond that way because I want that over there and I can't get it. Or, or I become very afraid that this thing that I'm so much desiring and think that I need in my life, I, I think that's going to damage it and I'm terrified. That's why you do what you do. It might help to know that, but you're not going to know that without a prayer life. All right, real quick here. There's an extra R in prayer. Most of y'all didn't know that. 
P-R-A-Y-R-E-R, prayerer. <laughs> Say it with me, prayerer. I don't know how so many R's got in the word prayer, but it did, and I didn't take it out. And so apparently people have been spelling it wrong all these years. I pray this is God's message for us today. So I, I don't know if the guy who invented the word prayer, he probably didn't pray about it at all. He just threw it together. It should have had an extra R in it. But anyway, prayer R <laughs> reveals God's will and direction, right? Jesus selecting the 12. He went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. We get direction from God. We get a revelation of God's will. Peter going to the Gentiles. This is such a huge, huge moment in the history of the church. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and the birds of the air. And you remember the rest of the story. God revealed to him, no longer Peter, do you consider the Gentiles unclean? I do not consider them unclean, Peter. Go to them with the gospel. How do you get that direction? Through prayer. God reveals direction and his will through prayer. So again, you extract prayer from your life, you extract direction from God from your life. Prayer brings expectancy. Prayer stirs up faith, eagerness, and anticipation. Listen, there's, there's something about prayer that's necessary. I find it interesting the word highlights the word of God in prayer, the word of God in prayer. You know, it's almost like this 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 product I use at, at home. It's, it's an epoxy type product. It sits in two containers inside the packaging and, and both of them are soft. But when you cut off equal portions of both and you combine them and you, and you smash them together, you rub them and rub them until they blend and blend and blend together, it stays soft for a little while and then it begins to harden and it becomes rigid and strong. Right? Well, there are some things in God that are kind of that way. Right? There's truth that we hear. We hear the word of God. We go to a meeting like this. We read a book. We, we have some time in the word. If, if that stays by itself and faith stays by itself and something doesn't take the two of them and, and do this to it, because you got to work this stuff. It's two different colors, and you can know when it's been worked together because they're no longer two different colors. They, they, they go from the two colors to one color. But it takes some work to get it to go to one color. Well, you know, there's the word of God and realities and truth and promises of God, and then there's faith. And something's got to mix those two together. I think this, this is prayer. This is what prayer does. It takes faith that God has given us and revelation that God has given us and it does that to it until suddenly truth becomes a strong thing in our lives. And do you know how easy it would be to miss out? This is, this is where you might be wanting a refund on your Christianity because it sounds like you've got all the right material, right? I know the word. I've got the product. I've got lots of scriptures. I've been taught all kinds of principles. I know a bunch of promises from God. And I know something about faith. But the two of these never get rubbed together. Right? You end up with it in Hebrews 4. While the promises of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. 
lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You can have faith in one container and truths in another, and if you don't put them together through prayer, it's so close, isn't it? I mean, most of us have been Christians in here long enough. I can't read a Bible passage that you haven't already heard. I can't preach from a passage today that you don't already know a lot about. And so if we're living these sub-biblical Christian lives, might it be that there's faith in our lives, but there's word in our life, but we don't have a prayer life that puts them together and makes some strong truths in our life that serve us more effectively. All right, last one. Matt, go ahead and come. Prayer, it does end in R, one of the many R's in prayer. Prayer restores, renews, and revives. That's what prayer does. Isaiah 55, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Your soul needs to hear God. Your soul gains health and strength by the hearing of God being spoken into your heart. Isaiah 40, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen, here's the reality. You get that by waiting on God. And if you don't wait on God, I think I could probably say you don't get to experience that. You live this perpetual life of feeling overwhelmed, under the weight, unrefreshed, exhausted spiritually. Prayer is an irreducible fundamental to the Christian life. You can't live this life without prayer. Now, here's how I want us to close. Got a few minutes left. I'm going to assume that all of us lived a digital life this week. And so we probably were hard-pressed to have some real interaction with God that sounded like this acronym for prayer. So I want you right now to let the Holy Spirit kind of take you into the realities of your life, areas in your life that you really feel like, I need, I need to be praying about this. Areas that have got some weight, they've got some concern to them. They've caught your attention. Your emotions are affected by these, okay? Let, let the Holy Spirit find those places. So let's everybody just bow your head. I'm not going to have anybody come forward this morning, so God's going to come find you in your seat here, okay? Lord, our lives are bigger than we are. We have questions, but not all the answers. We have needs, not all the resources. We have people that we can't control. We have factors in our own bodies. We just can't will for them to be different. But life seems to frequently move in ways that we can't fix. 
And Lord, in an amazing way, you have, you have made it so. You have made us a precarious people. A people in a world where we feel insecure, we feel unsafe, we feel like things are unstable. And Lord, the great remedy to our precarious situation is prayer. So Lord, right now, I pray that you give us some grace right now just to walk through a few thoughts here. Lord, begin to find us. Find the address in our lives where we're living this week. Find the, the fears and the elephants and the challenges. And I just want you to let the Holy Spirit make a few things real for you. I want you to take that situation. I want you to invite God's perspective on that situation right now. Just begin to to get a satellite image of that thing that's going on in your life. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, and you feel small. Your situation feels overwhelming. You can't see the end of it. It looks like it's going to go on and on and on. All right, that's your perspective. Now, back away right now. Trust in the Holy Spirit to help us here this morning. Back away. Beginning to see God's perspective. How does God see your need? How does God see this season of your life? Would God use words like this momentary light affliction? Would God use those words? I know that wouldn't be yours words. This feels like a forever unending, unbearable weight. But God says, no, no, it's, it's a momentary light affliction in light of the eternal weight of glory that God is working in your life. Are you seeing your life from heaven? God, give you perspective today. This is what your prayer life should feel like. You get yourself before God and you get quiet before Him. and You begin to invite God to give you His eyes, to give you His perspective on your life, on your situation. Your prayer life should feel this way. It'll take time. You'll need to take some time. Right now, God has desired for prayer to be a place where you can relieve your life of the burden and the weight. Cast your cares. Maybe you haven't done that in a while. Maybe you haven't just downloaded the weight onto God. Do it right now. Take your elephant and hand it to God. Say, God, here. God, I've I've been carrying this. It's been crushing me. I've been so discouraged. I have felt overwhelmed and paralyzed. But you care. Lord, you care for me. So I, I cast my care on you. Lord, I roll this onto you. I take my burden. Lord, take the weight. Lord, I'm coming near because I need to find mercy and grace to help me. Help me, Lord. I want to receive mercy and grace. I don't want to just know that mercy and grace exist. I want to receive it. Lord, I draw near to receive. God, help. Lord, lift the weight from my life, Lord. Give me a sense of anticipation that I I, I can, I'm able. You're enabling me. You're helping me. God, with your help, what can I not do? Lord, you are with me. Help me. You will help me. God, I come near because you are merciful and gracious. This is what prayer should feel like. This is what you should be experiencing when you pray.
relief from burdens. Begin to acknowledge the A in prayer. Acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Acknowledge God's purposes. Oh God, I've lost sight of what you are doing. God, you're doing something greater than just me. And just this moment, God, you're building faith in me. God, you're testing my faith like a refiner test gold to remove the impurities so that it will last, God, so that it will be there in the end. God, you're making sure I'm going to make it to the end, Lord. God, thank you. God, you're working in others' lives. Lord, I'm not the only person involved here. God, you're at work in other places. God, I acknowledge that, your purpose. God, I stand like Joseph. Lord, open my eyes to see and gain your insights into how you are working so that others might be preserved and others might be affected and your kingdom might come in their lives. Acknowledge God. Put yourself before God. Invite God's conviction. Invite the Spirit of God to speak to you about you. I I know that life can be noisy and people can cause problems and needs out there need to get fixed. But what about you? something you need to confess to God. Some issue that you've minimized and ignored that God wants to bring to your attention. Call on you to admit that. Say it to God. Be specific. Set it before Him. Confess and receive grace. Confess it before God and receive cleansing. Be able to move on and not let it affect you. Discolor who you are and what God's doing in your life. Confess to God yourself before God. God, this morning prayer gives us the opportunity to mix faith with your promises. Oh God, just just do that right now. Listen, this is what your prayer life should be like. Just think of this moment. It's kind of like you've heard the lecture, now you're going to the lab. Are you doing this? You can't just leave here today with more information. Right now, Mix it. Pick up faith in one hand. Pick up truth of who God is and His promises to you in the other. Begin to rub them together. Begin to rub faith into those promises. Begin to believe something about God. Dare, dare to put God to the test to show Himself great and glorious on your behalf. Dare to believe God to do something incredible. Stir it together until anticipation begins to form in your heart. You're not just trying to survive. You're opening the windows every day, looking out to see, is today today? God, will you do it today? God, is now the season? Are you about to bring that to pass now? God, I'm looking for it. I believe you will. God, I pray that you would, by grace, through prayer, restore and revive and refresh hearts here this morning. Lord, even just in the few moments that we've taken to turn our attention to you. Lord, I pray that that from this meeting, Lord, many will go and find places of prayer that have these components to it. Perspective, acknowledging your purpose and your sovereignty, bringing ourselves before you. Letting you examine our hearts. God, getting your direction into our lives. Stirring up faith and calling on you to do that. 
having our souls revived and relieved and renewed. God, strength. God, bring strength into this meeting. God, bring strength into these hearts. God, those that wait upon the Lord, they will renew their strength. God, where there's been weariness walking in here today, God, come near by the Spirit and renew strength and vigor. Awaken us again, Lord, to believe you, to hope in you, to cling to you, to take steps. God, revive us. Lift our gaze, Lord, where we have walked in with our countenance down and we have felt drained by life. Oh God, just even in this moment, Lord, renew our strength. Renew our strength, Lord. Let's stand up together and close with a song.